3: 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
4: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
5: Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and each week I'm going to tell you about more cool people, including our guest, Bridget Todd who is a certifiable cool person. Bridget, if you had to elevator pitch yourself, what would that pitch sound like?
0: Oh, it would sound like I am a internet weirdo who loves to hang out and make cool podcasts. (laughs) That's bad.
5: Eh, It works.
0: I'll I'll leave it at that.
5: (laughs) Okay, cool. We also have Sophie Lichterman on the call who produces this and literally every other podcast, uh, I think. Sophie, what's your elevator pitch for yourself as a person Uh, or producer?
2: Podcasts, puppies, plants. You're welcome.
5: Cool. There are a lot of plants in Sophie's Zoom background. (laughs) So in the first half of this two-parter, we talked about the women who were computers who studied space or got people into space. Today, we're going to talk about space and the people who got into space. But first, we're going to talk about the gay man who broke the Nazis' codes and shortened World War II by years, saving 14 million lives, and kind of invented the modern computer. Which is to say, we're going to talk about motherfucking Alan Turing.
2: Hell yeah. And I
5: say kind of invented modern computing because there isn't actually a specific start date for computers. It really depends on how you're defining computer. At least that's as I've always understood. it. I think you know more about computers than me, so I'm like (laughs) making sure that I'm phrasing things yeah yeah i I definitely don't
0: (laughs) i definitely don't
5: okay good to know so alan turing had the the misfortune of being born in 1912 in london i don't know if the year was misfortunate but being english and gay worked out really badly for him in the end and not that many places were better but just as a white american of irish descent i'm legally required to make fun of england every chance i can because i (laughs) Can pretend like it's punching up, even though it clearly isn't. So there's my jab at England that turned into a jab at myself. <laughs> Alan Turn was a, a rich, British, smart kid. So he wound up in boarding school where he fell in love with a fellow student named Christopher who died of fucking tuberculosis. Bovine tuberculosis. I swear to God, everyone in every episode that I record, that if they're not killed violently by a government, they are killed by tuberculosis. Christopher drank infected milk and died. Turing wasn't really excited about that. He turned his grief towards his studies. He went on to study at Cambridge, and while he was there, he did a bunch of wild math shit that is completely beyond me, and he wrote out a sort of basic idea of a computer, a sort of conceptual but not capable of being made idea of a computer called the Turing machine. And I know what you're thinking, because it's what I was thinking when I was researching this. He did not name it the Turing machine. Uh, He's not that kind of asshole. He named it the A machine for automatic machine, And his doctoral advisor called it the Turing machine. It also doesn't exist. It's a hypothetical thing. It's a proof of concept. But its basic principles wound up the central concept of modern computers, which is cool. I mean, I know computers have done a lot of bad things, but I kind of like them. I'm kind of addicted to them.
0: I like them, too. Like, where would we be without our... Like, how would we stay up until 4 a.m. researching nonsense, if not for the computer?
5: I know we'd have to find a library.
0: (laughs) It's much less fun to be at the library at 4 a.m. when you should be asleep researching like a list of animals that got college degrees or whatever random thing you're looking up on Wikipedia (laughs) when you should be asleep.
5: (laughs) Wait, which animals got college degrees?
0: Oh, there's a really interesting Wikipedia uh, page about. Animals that have earned college degrees, they're all honorary. I mean, come on, but uh-huh. still.
2: <laughs> Here's Bridget giving us more Googling. <laughs> Thank this you. This is just my, my legacy. <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah, no, as an aspiring honorary degree getter, I uh, <laughs> I really see myself in these animals, so I'm excited to, to see them. But Alan Turing was not an honorary degree getter. He was a regular degree getter. He might have gotten honorary ones, too. I don't know. So after school, he also went to Princeton too, I think just to show off, to go to both Cambridge and Princeton. He got a job working for the government in the Code and Cypher School. And then in 1939, the Nazis are like doing their Nazi thing. I swear to God, it's impossible to do a history podcast that doesn't tie in the Nazis at some point. Probably one of those animals in that list is fucking Nazi. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So- And then he starts working at a, in 1939, he's working at a super secret, top secret, extra secret Bletchley Park in order to decipher Nazi codes, which he succeeded at. Not single-handedly. I think this guy's hella cool, but we, I keep hitting the same point, but it's teams of people who make history, but he still did a fucking lot of it. And probably, it certainly would have not happened in the same way without him, might not have happened at all. The work that they did, did not single-handedly crush Hitler, but basically having access to all of their coded information uh one historian calculated that it shortened the war by two to four years and saved 14 million lives which i mean fuck that ain't bad we always talk about like oh this person killed x million number of people right but we don't i haven't seen the wikipedia list of the people who've saved the most people
0: yeah and it really goes back to sort of like i like it's kind of fucked up that we talk about like like numbers of people killed when we're talking about war but like even the conception of oh they this action saved x amount of people's lives mm-hmm. we don't really even have a, a like an understanding of that like we don't that's that's not how we describe things
5: yeah totally and then even like like i'm pretty i'm pretty anti-militaristic in my attitude and most of the time but i don't necessarily apply that to world war ii where stopping the nazis seems like a really important thing to do even if all of the people trying to do it all the governments trying to do it were bad like the USSR and the US, right? But it's interesting to think that like, oh, this person who contributed to the war saved millions of lives. I don't know. Because most of the time, that's not the way that you save millions of lives. Yeah. So the Nazis are sending messages using these machines called Enigma machines, which would be a name that would be absolutely trite if I wrote it in fiction. And there are these typewriters that translate between ciphertext and plain text. You type in your message, it comes out of code, or you type in a code, it comes out of message. And it, it's based on a key which can change every day. And by the time the war starts, the Nazis are changing it every day. It was actually Polish mathematicians who first broke Enigma. And right before World War II, they passed that information along to the Allies. So Poland sort of gets the last laugh about that whole um, being crushed by the Nazis thing, or at least they got to participate in the reverse crushing. But then after the war breaks out, the Nazis change how Enigma works and it needed new breaking. The stuff gets really into the weeds. People really like codes. Turing and another codebreaker developed a purpose-built code-breaking machine that they called the Bomb or the Bombay or something, and it's Bomb with an E at the end, but not like Bomb e like WALL-E, which would be a better choice, I think, (laughs) that they could have made. During the war, he broke Nazi codes and did other shit like he developed a voice scrambler to encrypt voice calls, which is like something that I even, I conceptually struggle to imagine how I would do a hundred years later, you know? I'm not a cryptographer that's this is really coming across to anyone who is a cryptographer is listening and then after the war he fucking invents the modern computer sort of same as everyone who invents the modern computer lots of people do it but he he puts forward the idea that computers can store their programs and this is a really major step up and uh he also stayed gay imagine that at one point in 1941 he actually proposed to a, a co-worker a woman and she said yes and then he was like oh, but I'm gay. And she was like, that's, that's fine. Okay, we can still get married.
0: Not a deal breaker.
5: I know. And then Turing was like, you know, actually, I probably shouldn't marry you. I feel like that would be like dishonest or something. But yeah, I appreciate that it wasn't a deal breaker for him. In 1952, he's 39 years old. He starts dating a younger man. He accidentally snitches himself out to the cops about being gay. His house had been burgled and he made the classic mistake that rich white people make where he thought that the cops would um, help him
0: don't talk to cops
5: exactly and if he had listened to our sponsor don't talk to cops his life would have been very different and probably substantially longer so he outs himself as gay while he's explaining like why his partner like why there's another man in the house or whatever like his his partner was like unemployed and probably knew the burglar and i don't know it's all this complicated shit so he and his boyfriend get arrested because they're gay and that's not right apparently He pleads guilty. First, he kind of pleads like no contest. His lawyers are like, plead guilty. So he pleads guilty, and he's given two choices. You can either go to fucking prison for daring sleep with another consenting adult, or you can let us chemically castrate you. We're the government. He picks chemical castration. Basically, they... These are are hormones that feminize his body. They reduce his libido. They make him impotent, and they cause breast tissue to form. So... The punishment for being gay was being forced to transition.:
0: Oh um, my God, like the gov like the government I mean, I, it, it almost seems silly in 2022 when we know that our that governments are trying to make it like like criminalize trans youth and like keep them from mm-hmm. gender refor- gender affirming care. but like it is wild to me that we're still having this conflict because that's it's, yeah. it seems so like backward and horrible, but then I had to be like, oh, wait it's not really like the government really getting involved in like people's expression of their gender and sexuality. I wish it were a thing of the past and that like, what a relic of, of a, of a different time, but like, not really, unfortunately.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I, I even, I like tried to write a thing out in the script about this and all I wrote out was what the fuck, because like, what the fuck I just keep looking at it. And I'm like, this is what they're not letting us do on purpose now. Mm -hmm. But when the government wants to do it to game, like, I don't fucking know. Mindfuck. Yeah. His boyfriend gets, I think, the same deal. He does some kind of deal that gets him out of prison, and I don't believe it was, like, cooperation or anything. I think it was probably the same chemical castration. And, of course, now he's a terrible monster, so he can't keep his security clearance at the government who he entirely saved, and he loses his job. You can't have your fucking 14 million lives-saving fucking hero, like, sucking dudes off. That'd be bad you know um and the u.s doesn't let him enter because he's like so bad and untouchable again like the fucking hero of world war ii can't have someone as dangerous as that around in the u.s so two years later on june 7th 1954 turing kills himself with cyanide and it's possible that this was an accident i i frankly don't believe it Uh, apparently he he loved snow white and the seven dwarves was one of his favorite films And one biographer said that he particularly liked the scene where the, you know, wicked witch or whatever dips the apple into poison and a half-eaten apple was found next to his corpse and they didn't bother to check it for cyanide before they like hucked it out or whatever. So there was also this whole electroplating setup in his tiny room for gold plating spoons. And so there's like this accidental death theory that he accidentally killed himself with cyanide that he was using to electroplate spoons, which... I don't know. I, I buy the theory that he put that there for plausible deniability. He put that there mm-hmm. to be like, I feel like a lot of the time when people choose to end their own lives, they come up with ways to do it in ways that kind of give everyone around them a way to be like, well, we don't know for sure, even though we all kind of know, Yeah. You know, I don't know. This just gets into the, what the fuck? He's another gay man driven to suicide by society. They won't accept him. I don't know. And so, like, we're recording this episode and the listener is listening to this episode with technology that this man fucking developed. Um, and then the UK government killed him, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, I mean, it. it I, I, what you just said really, like, puts it in perspective that we're... People are listening to this episode on technology that we wouldn't have without him. And yet, rather than being treated like the innovator and hero that he was, he was driven to death by suicide. And I think it, like... I don't know, maybe I'm just in a weird place where I can't help but see these parallels of today of like, yeah. who out there are we going to be like, oh, if only we had, you know, celebrated them and affirmed them while they were here. Like, it's just like a generate. it's, it's just so so wasteful. Like, what a wasteful yeah. way to treat someone who had so much to give to the world.
5: Yeah, no, totally. And it it just keeps up coming up again and again that people people work for these institutions like governments in order to. Improve the world and and take humanity further and advance human knowledge, and then get basically murdered by them or you know thrown away. Not my favorite thing that's happened. So, let's talk about the space race. So World War Two is over and it's Cold War time, and which brings it with it the space race. And I'm going to cut mostly over to the USSR for a while because I'm not trying to be like yay US with this podcast. I've probably hit this theme enough, but I don't like the U.S. or the U.S.S.R. And it's a cold war between two evil powers. But they still did all this really interesting shit, the individual scientists. And the U.S.S.R., for my money, won the space race. Uh, we got to the moon first, which which everyone pretends is like the biggest prize. But the U.S.S.R. had the first satellite, the first mammal, the first human, the first woman, the first and the first black man into space.
0: Oh, what was the first mammal, do you know?
5: Oh, crap. I looked it up. Um... Oh, no, I don't remember. Uh, I should have put you on the spot. No, no, no. I, I had this whole section written about the animals they sent to space, and then I got too sad, and I decided not to include them because most of the animals that got sent up into space were just, like, sent into space and then abandoned, or some of them were sent up into space and then came back and then were, you know, treated badly upon their return. Oh, okay. um, no, so I got really sad about the animal part, so then I cut it out, and now I don't remember what the first animal was. But fruit flies were the first, like, living creature.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm sad that, that they didn't treat these animals well when they returned. Or if they returned, my God.
5: I know. Some of them ended up like heroes or whatever. And like, you it know, some, some of the dogs, I think, in particular.
2: I, like, I looked it up. It was a doggo.
5: Oh, hi, doggo. So the space race, the USSR starts it by launching a satellite, right? Uh, and guess what inspired them to launch a satellite? The obvious answers here would be either like domination of the planet to a hive mind of communism, if you're reading propaganda on one end of the spectrum, or the furtherance of human knowledge from a detached atheistic point of view. After all, the USSR were full of atheists, right? Wrong. I mean, the USSR was full of atheists, but not just full of atheists and a lot of their rocket scientists. So the philosophical underpinnings of the USSR's entry into the space race, the thing that started the chain of events that got a human on the moon, were the Cosmists. Have you ever heard of the Cosmists? i haven't so they're this weird ideologically diverse philosophical and scientific movement that is kind of cult-like and it marries spirituality and science and they were aspiring necromancers who wanted to raise the dead not necromancy (laughs) necromancy (laughs) if you think the fucking leftists arguing on twitter are bad right now in the 1920s, there were anarchists arguing that death was "quote" logically absurd, ethically impermissible, and aesthetically ugly.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> I just, I don't know. I somehow I didn't see necromancy coming yeah, up yeah, in this yeah. conversation. <laughs> real, real left turn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
5: So, and the, this is the this is the group. That includes basically all of the early rocket scientists in the USSR and the people designing practical spacecraft. Their ideological founder was a guy named Nikolai Fyodorov, who died penniless in 1903 of pneumonia in a rented room full of strangers. And he came at the whole thing from a Christian lens. He was an Orthodox Christian. And the reason he died so poor is that in proper Christian form, he gave away everything he owned. I think he was also, I think it was, I think it was him who was also very conservative and like liked the czar. This is not like a communist hero. But he gets called the Socrates of Moscow and he would hold intellectual salons and he was he befriended Tolstoy until they got into arguments about politics, Tolstoy being far left. And Tolstoy also shows up in every episode I do and I don't understand why. Um, <laughs> I don't even have any particular love for Tolstoy. But he's everywhere. If I talk about Russia, Tolstoy is there.
0: There he is. Pops up.
5: His most important protege. Oh, and his whole thing. So the three things that the Cosmos are trying to do is that they're trying to Colonize space. They're trying to resurrect the dead and live forever, just like you do.
0: Yeah, they're on some like Peter Thiel
2: shit. Like yeah, I know, <laughs> like... I know.
5: I mean, these are the like these are the the forefathers of the futurist movement. Um, it and
2: does it, not, shows. it really doesn't surprise me that Tolstoy is being brought up when it, death is being described as aesthetically ugly. Like that feels very <laughs> on brand.
5: Yeah, fair enough. So so this guy's most important protege was Konstantin Sholkovsky, who lived in a cabin in the woods by choice and wrote books with riveting titles like Explorations of Outer Space by Means of Rocket Devices. And he was talked about guiding ships with rocket thrusters. He talked about using airlocks on space stations, and he spent his time developing ideas of closed-loop ecosystems that would keep everyone fed on space stations, which basically means he he came up with the basic foundations of where we're currently at a hundred years later in terms of our space travel. A lot of these early cosmists are right-wing czarists and shit, but a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were leftists. During the Russian Revolution and the resulting civil war, some chunk of the cosmists became the biocosmists, and they're an anarchist faction, and they're fighting for colonized space, resurrect the dead, live forever. Lenin, famously not excited about anarchists in general, including the ones who started off as his allies, he actually lets them hang out longer than all the other anarchists, not because they're weird necromancers, but because they kind of shut up and backed the Bolsheviks. And they were mostly a poetry movement. They were so confusing. The, the whole fucking Cosmos thing. And people are really into the Cosmos. I had never even heard of them until uh, I first read about them in an introduction to a Russian novel that I was reading. Most of the rocket scientists in USSR are Cosmos. So after the revolution... Things are looking really good for the USSR to get into space, right? Until who comes onto the stage but Stalin? Stalin comes on and fucks everything up. Motherfucking Stalin shows up. He fucks everything up. He disappears all of the major players into the whole thing because he does not like how religious the whole thing is. And he doesn't like that some portions of it are too anarchistic. Space communism aborted by Stalin. He also shuts down research into computers because he saw them as an evil Western capitalist plot to undermine workers' rights. Even though the first computer able to solve differential equations in the world was a Soviet invention in 1936, it was called the water integrator, and it stores numbers by different quantities of water, which fucking rules. Yeah, I've never even heard of this. I hadn't either. I really want to see one. So anyway, in 1953, Stalin did the single best thing he ever did for the world he fucking died. Not a big Stalin fan here. 1957, Russian scientists get Sputnik 1 into orbit, the first artificial satellite in Earth orbit by anyone in the world. It's only after a month of design and construction. Basically, they hit the ground running as soon as they get out of uh, Stalin jail. Sputnik 1 hangs out doing its thing for three weeks until its batteries run out. And then a couple months later, it burns up on reentry. And this, not the fact that it burns out on reentry, but The fact that they launched it freaks the U.S. out entirely and triggers the space race, which the USSR continues to beat the shit out of the U.S. in. On April 12th, 1961, the first human gets into space, Yuri Gagarin, who's a Russian cosmonaut because they called theirs cosmonauts and the U.S. called theirs astronauts. Yuri goes up on Vostok 1. And the main designer for both of these things, Sputnik and Vostok, was Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. I really am good at Russian. That's my... Second, like I'm not good at Russian. He's a cosmist. Sergei is, or at least he's heavily influenced by the cosmos. He writes books about the cosmos and shit to interact with their theories. I think he's a cosmist. He spent six years in prison thanks to Stalin and his fucked up paranoia before he gets out and wins the space race. And this is—he sends the first dog, the first man, the first woman, and the first spacewalker into space. His rockets photograph the dark side of the moon. He never loses anyone on any flight during his direction, and. Unsurprisingly, actually, this is going to shock you. He didn't trust his government very much. He had lost all of his teeth while he was in prison, or some of his teeth, because of scurvy. So he doesn't trust his government very much. Apparently, his favorite expression was: "This is a really catchy expression. We are all going to be shot, and there will be no obituary." That's his like catchphrase, you know. Grim.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I get it, but grim. Well, death
2: is aesthetically ugly, if you didn't know. Yeah, (laughs) totally.
5: (laughs) But you know what isn't aesthetically ugly is a good comb, a solid, reliable comb. You can get a lot done with it. Not any particular brand, just a really good comb. As well as all of the sponsors of today's show, besides combs. Here's some ads.
2: Me.
4: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
5: And we are back and we're talking about how we're all going to be shot and there'll be no obituary if we live in Soviet Russia. And I think, I think that this attitude of him really underlines this thing, again, to keep hitting my same themes over and over again. And that these scientists are scientists, first and foremost, and they interact with bureaucracy as best as they can to facilitate the science. And this has a lot of bad effects, but I don't know, I, it, it makes sense to me. I can kind of understand this guy being like, well, I guess I'm really interested in sending shit to space, so I'm going to work with even the people who just let me out of jail. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it makes sense to me. And it's like like if you're interested in space, there really is only one game in town. It's not like you can start your own little like indie space startup.
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish. But then you have to be Elon Musk and do other evil shit on a completely different other evil axis. So so one of the reasons that the Soviets are ahead of the US, I mean, one they they start first. Right. And they've been planning for it for years because they're Practically religiously obsessed with it, the cosmos at least. Uh, It's part of their three part program. And the other is kind of ironically, they had an advantage in that they hadn't gotten as ahead in technology. They weren't miniaturizing their technology. We were using, we, the US was using transistors and the USSR was still using vacuum tubes. So they just made everything like fucking giant and brutal and Soviet. NASA's Mercury spacecraft was like a tiny floating coffin, the Soviet Vostok was a cannonball filled with padding and NASA went for careful water landings, the USSR was like, "I'll just get the fuck out with a parachute before it hits the ground, all right? Um,
0: Like, get the fuck out of there. Good luck. Go, 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 what are you, an idiot? The thing's going to hit the ground. Like, that's all they gave him. Good luck.
5: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and actually, and actually they, they gave although they were the first to start sending engineers instead of just pilots up into space, uh, the very first people they were sending up, they were like, you don't have any control over this thing. You just, you're just, you just there. You're just there. You have some basic stuff. Whereas the U.S. space program, the astronauts had a lot more control, a lot more uh, ability to f- understand what was happening and fix problems. But yeah, so this sets them up for quick victories, but it makes a complex operation like landing on the moon much harder. And so they they do later keep trying and failing to. They managed to hit the moon a lot, but they don't manage to soft land on the moon very well. So, But the Soviets get women into space first. The U.S. was poised to get women into space first. The U.S. had private screenings for potential women astronauts starting in 1959. It was financed by a wealthy woman aviator. And in the end, they picked 13 women who passed all the same tests as male astronauts. Decades later, they were dubbed the Mercury Thirteen, which wasn't their name at the time, as a reference to the Mercury Seven, which is the seven male astronauts that were picked. An aviator named Jerry Cobb was lead among these women, and she had already set, in her twenties, she had set three aviation records, like not just for like a woman aviator, but uh, for any aviator. Wow! But then, in 1962, there was a House Committee hearing on gender discrimination in the space race. Jerry Cobb and others testified basically it was discrimination to not let them go up into space just because they were women. Uh, They passed all the same tests as the male astronauts. That seems pretty cut and dry, right? You think they're going to (laughs) win? I don't know. (laughs) Well, guess who testifies against them? But the first two American men to go up in orbit, including John Glenn, who is painted as this trust women anti-racist in the fucking movie Hidden Figures.
0: Are you fucking kidding?
5: I am not kidding.
0: Okay, wait, so how the hell do we let people like this be like rebranded as like heroic and like anti-racist feminist? Like,
2: what the hell? They They only read the fucking headline. They don't read the whole story.
5: Yeah. Yeah. His quote to the committee. I think this gets back to the way our social order is organized, really. It is just a fact. The men go off and fight wars and fly the airplanes and come back and help design and build and test them. The fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order, which what a, ew. is true, but only in a bad way. Yeah.
0: And like to say that and be like, and like what the, the unsaid thing is like dot, dot, dot. And we need to uphold that norm. <laughs> you yeah, know totally. What I mean? <laughs>
5: totally. He he did. Apparently he had it like he had his like maybe I shouldn't be this way moment when um oh, I don't remember her name, but a, a woman died in the Challenger explosion. and Oh, yeah. he, he eulogized her and uh, did not say like, well, she shouldn't have been there in the first place. Am I right? You know, um, <laughs> I think he like 20 years later or whatever kind of like came around. but But first he argued part of their defense about why women shouldn't get to fly in space is that in order to be an astronaut, you had to be a test pilot in the air force and women weren't allowed to be test pilots so so sorry sorry ladies can't go to space because this it's it's not us it's this other institution that's preventing yeah, you from it's this space.
0: other rule we would we would change it if it were up to us but you yeah. know yeah. sorry
5: yeah. it's just the social order am i right <laughs> um <laughs> god anyway this delays women from going to space for decades So the the Soviets are always looking for propaganda coups over the U.S., and they really like to prove how more progressive they are. So they send the first woman into space, Valentina Tereshkova, on June 16th, 1963. Most of the Soviets involved in the space race that I've found were just scientists who happened to do their work in the USSR. Not Valentina. She's a patriot and a communist. Well, she's actually still alive, and she's still a patriot. She's not technically a communist anymore. She's born in 1937, and shortly thereafter, her father was killed in that dumb thing where the Soviets tried to invade Finland, because in this thing that will sound familiar to nobody, the, the Winter War where the Soviets invaded Finland was because they decided that the Finnish border was too close to one of their cities, so it was a threat, and so they had to move the border, so they invaded Finland. Anyway, her dad died doing that, and I'm not sorry. Valentina finishes school. She joins the communist party. She gets to work at a textile factory, and then she becomes a competitive parachutist, which is objectively cool. I didn't even imagine competitive parachuting. I think of parachuting as a thing you do when you turn 40 and you're trying to find meaning in life.
0: Or you're George W. Bush doing it on your birthday, right? No?
5: Yeah, apparently, yes. (laughs) Sophia is wagging her finger correct to say yes. Um... And it was this activity that got her noticed and soon enough she ends up a cosmonaut. She's the first woman in space and to this day she's the only woman who's been to space on a solo trip. And there was this tradition among cosmonauts on the way to the launch pad where they needed to take one last piss before they got into the shuttle. So they would pee on the tire of the bus that takes them out. (laughs) I know. I mean. (laughs) It's the most boy thing in the world, right?
0: It's like I say this as someone who loves to camp and like yeah. takes a lot of pleasure in peeing outside. Yeah. Gross.
5: <laughs> Valentina did not break this tradition. And she, too, peed on the uh, which is kind of like I kind of like that energy, though. I kind of like. The yeah. Like, all right. Fuck it. She goes up to space. She orbits 48 times in a single flight, really just trying to flex on the US. She logs more flight time in that than all American astronauts prior to that combined. She takes photos of the atmosphere that are used to analyze the atmosphere. And then the way that she was particularly nauseous during her her flight was like used to study the effects of space on on the human. And since her flight capsule was basically a cannonball, it comes down crashing into the Earth. She ejects four kilometers above the ground and parachutes down, which is the skill that got her the job. Because they're like, look, all you got to do is get shot into space and parachute at the end, right? That's like... (laughs)
0: And she's like an expert competitive parachuter. So she's got like 90% of the job she's got down. Yeah,
5: exactly. I mean, I think she also like trained and shit to be a cosmonaut, but like, but this is why she got picked. And then she fights strong winds on her descent. She bruises but not breaks her nose on the landing. And then she has some dinner with local villagers and then she goes home, a hero. And she wanted to keep going to space, but she was too valuable as a propaganda hero. And against her wishes, she was put in charge of the Committee for Soviet Women in 1968 because the USSR was a dictatorship and she didn't get to choose what she did. She dives into feminist socialist politics. She stays a communist for a while after the collapse of the USSR. And now she's a politician with the United Russia Party, which is basically the let Putin do whatever he wants party. Uh, She tried in 2020 to remove term limits for Putin. Um, She sort of succeeded. Putin now has a two-term limit, but they reset them. So Putin has two more terms or whatever, like a decade left. She's not my hero. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like a classic story of like jumping out of planes and pissing on wheels is cool. But then it's like, oh, yeah, you did all this other stuff for like a fucked up fascist state. Like yeah. Good job, I guess.
5: Yeah, totally. One time she meets Jerry Cobb, the American woman who should have preceded her and been the first woman into space. And she actually said, well, I idolized you before she became a cosmonaut. And she said, quote, we always figured you would be the first. What happened? And then to the media, she said, they, the American leaders, shout at every turn about their democracy. And at the same time, they announced they will not let a woman into space. This is open inequality. So she knows what the fuck is happening. She knows her role, both as a propagandist, but she's also telling the truth. You know, they're both hypocrites, both not the people, but the governments. Incidentally, Jerry Cobb, who should have been the first woman in space and should have gotten to go to space with the US. She gets fucked over out of it more than once because later that asshole John Glenn, he gets sent to space as a 77 year old and he claims that he wants to do it so they could test the effects of space on aging. So they need to send an old person. But it's like really openly just like a political favor. And he wants Ugh. to go to space again. So Jerry Cobb is like, oh, yeah, you, you probably need to test that on a woman too." me. I never got to go to fucking space. NASA's like, sorry, babe. She never got to go to space.
0: That's so fucked up.
5: I know. I know. This,
0: this is really making me hate John Glenn. I know.
5: <laughs> I feel almost bad, but I don't. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm sure there's more to the story than the these sides of him, but. Uh, I, don't don't
0: fucking, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that he maybe renounced these vibes at some point in his life. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, this is reminding me so much. Did you ever hear that anecdote that Sally Ride, when she went to space, they gave her, she was going to be there for a week and they gave her like a hundred tampons. And they were like, will this be enough? <laughs> like the the greatest scientific mind, a hundred tampons. And also, will this be enough? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I think that the whole thing is like all the different ways that like, these, these institutions and individuals coalesce to, to make it be like, oh, women don't belong in space. Like yeah. if you go up to space, yeah. we have no idea how to keep how to make you feel supported. Like yeah. you had no business up there in the first place. It is
5: wild. Totally. And then the, like more recently when they're like planning the Mars mission and they're like, well, we should send four women so that they don't have sex and therefore there's no like <laughs> weird feelings.
0: Yeah, women never have sex with each other.
5: No, definitely not. <laughs> not in zero G either. <laughs> yeah i didn't know it was sally ride about the tampon thing i'd heard that i
0: think i think it was don't yeah. quote don't quote me on that but i think it was
2: it definitely was a 100 tampons though that is yeah. actually correct yeah there's like songs about it it's the most ridiculous yeah. thing i've i've seen a song on i've seen a song like
0: 100 tampons. Yes. And will that be enough? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, and these are the people who, yeah, I can play oh this. Oh my on them.
0: gosh. Yeah. Cool.
5: Yeah. So Sally Ride actually is next in my script because she doesn't get to go to space till 1983. She's the third woman in space. And I didn't know this until recently. And I think no one, most people didn't. It came out more recently. Uh, she's the first confirmed gay person in space. After she died, her obituary casually mentioned her partner of 27 years.
0: I did not know she was gay. No,
5: she apparently, according to her sister, who's more publicly out, she hadn't hidden her relationship, but she hadn't made it public either. Mm. And just basically been like, that's not what. And also, I think there was a lot of like, what well, you'd fuck up your career if you told anyone right now, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but if, if if those four women go to Mars, none of them will be gay. <laughs> yeah.
0: No lesbian sex happening in mm-hmm. space. Don't worry. Nope,
5: definitely not. So this brings us to the first black person in space, and the first thing I did was Google first black person in space because I was like, not totally sure, and I got the wrong answer at the top of the Google screen, because if you type into Google first black person in space, you get a little automatic answer at the top that says Guion S. Blueford, uh, who went to space on the third Challenger mission in 1983, and This guy is a, I mean, he's a talented guy. He's still alive. He has medals after medals from the Air Force. And he's written a ton of papers about fluid dynamics and shit like that. But he wasn't the first black person in space. He was the first black American in space. And it comes up time and time again, right? That you look something up and it's like the first person to do this thing. And it usually means the first Western person or the first white person or the first, in this case, like, you know, non-Soviet bloc person or whatever. But the first black person in space was also the first Latin American person in space and the first Cuban in space. And he wasn't an astronaut. He was a cosmonaut. Cuban cosmonaut Arnaldo Tamayo Mendez went to space in 1980 for a week as part of the USSR's Intercosmos program, which was a program by which the USSR's allies were given access to space for research. And honestly, just for clout, like every country wants to get to have gone to space, right? And they even let non Allied Western powers use intercosmos sometimes, which was like an extra flex over the US because the US is like way stingier about who they'll send to space. And Arnaldo Tamio Mendez is born January 29th, 1942 in the Guantanamo province of Cuba. He never knew his father. His mother was dirt poor and died of tuberculosis when Arnaldo was eight months old. He was raised the age of nine by his grandmother, who also took in the children of another one of her dead children. This is not a very nice time to be poor in Cuba before communism. It was pretty fucking bad. Eventually, when he was nine, his uncle, who was a mechanic, took him in. And as a young kid, Arnaldo started taking every job he could as a shoe shine, a vegetable peddler, a milk delivery boy. By the time he was 13, he found himself an apprentice carpenter, but he didn't drop out of school. In the background of all this, when Arnaldo was 10 or so, the U.S. installed a dictator in Cuba named Batista. Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and a ton of other people had this whole revolution thing. It took like five years. In 1959, they win. Batista did the classic dictator thing where he steals hundreds of millions of dollars and then fucks off out of the country, in this case to Portugal. And Arnaldo, 17, was one of the thousands who stormed through the streets in joy to see their military dictatorship overthrown. He joins the military, becomes an aviation technician. And soon he heads off to the Soviet Union, learning how to fix and fly fighter jets. And then he flies 20 reconnaissance missions during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. The Cuban Missile Crisis was when, oh crap, Cuba has nukes now, which happened when the USSR gave their buds some nukes, which they did because the U.S. had stationed nukes pointing at the USSR in Italy and Turkey. And the U.S. has also just tried to invade Cuba and failed in the Bay of Pigs invasion. So the U.S. is like, oh no, Cuba suddenly has nukes. I mean, there's a reason that Cuba suddenly had nukes. The crisis ends when the U.S. agrees not to invade Cuba anymore and to withdraw its nukes from Turkey, and the USSR agrees to withdraw its nukes from Cuba. So anyway, Arnaldo flew a bunch in the Cuban Air Force during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and as well as he started teaching Cuban aviators. In 1967, he spent two years fighting in Vietnam, which was you know, on the opposite side of the conflict as the U.S., which is interesting because he was on the opposite side of the same war flying missions as the U.S.'s first uh, black astronaut. And I've, I've read mixed reports about exactly what Cuba got up to in Vietnam. They weren't like a major presence in the war, but if nothing else, they provided limited air support for the North Vietnamese. The USSR wanted to send some foreign cosmonauts up into space, started looking for a Cuban, came down to Arnaldo, who was black, and Jose Armando Lopez Falcon, who wasn't black. And it's possible after winnowing it down to two people, Castro picked Arnaldo uh, basically as a fuck you to the US to point out, to make fun of the US for its awful race relations, right? But Cuba was also full of anti-Black racism at that time. More than half of its population was Black. Terrell Jermaine Starr, writing in the Washington Post in 2016, made the case that Moscow and Havana rolled out the red carpet for Langston Hughes and Asada Shakur, but non-exceptional Black people were regularly discriminated against, jailed disproportionately to non-Black residents, and just generally mistreated.
0: Yeah, I mean, the anti-Black, it's so interesting, and I love how you've put this. The anti-blackness in Cuba is a documented thing, but yet they do like welcome, I guess, quote, exceptional black folks. And it's so interesting to me that Cuba would be trying to sort of get one over on the US by being like, oh, look how we treat our black folks. We spend send them to space mm-hmm. while while like totally ignoring the reality that is anti-blackness in their own country. It is like so interesting and so layered and so complex and nuanced and like it's I guess I, I'm happy to hear you talk about it in this way because so many people talking about it really don't have the range to like really parse <laughs> the, the, the the like the seven layer casserole that is anti blackness globally, I guess I'll say.
5: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I spent a while trying to be like, oh, my God. And I just kept going. You're right. It's it's so many layers as it goes down and down and with anti blackness all the way down. It's really fucking. <laughs>
0: it's anti blackness the whole way
5: down. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about the USSR's anti-black racism for a second. (laughs) In the 1960s, the USSR had its own black rights demonstrations because African students, especially from Ghana, had been moving to the country for studies. And then an African man named Edmund Asaro Otto was found dead in 1963. And students say that he was killed for uh, sleeping with a white woman. And they had a demonstration about it that may or may not have been a riot. One sign read another Alabama, which was, you know, a clear reference to the widespread anti-black racism in the US, basically saying it should have fucking been better here. And the Soviet government, surprise, surprise, claimed it was all a propaganda stunt set up by the Western powers. And we're like, oh, the guy just froze to death or whatever, you know. And there's only 150 to 700 people at this protest, which makes it seem sort of like not a big deal. But it's the first demonstration on Red Square since the 1920s. Because USSR, not really big on allowing freedom of political speech and assembly, and people fucking did it anyway, because um, they were fucking mad. For whatever reason, they pick Arnaldo, and he's a perfectly good you know, cosmonaut choice. He's a, a, he's a great pilot. He's a, a perfect choice to represent Cuba. On September 18th, 1980, Arnaldo becomes the first black person in space, something that the US didn't succeed at until 1983. He spends, he spends more than a week on the Soviet space station conducting agricultural experiments designed by Cuban scientists so that Cuba can advance some of its, its science. But he wasn't treated as the first black person in space right away. He definitely was the first black person in space, but no one was making a big deal out of his blackness. He was the first Cuban in space and the first Latin American in space. And it wasn't until the US sent up their black Vietnam vet, Guillaume Bluford, that attention was really drawn to the fact that Cuba did it first. Um, Because everything's a bunch of bullshit propaganda wars that use marginalized people as ammunition. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's so much like the episode that we just did about that, you know, hidden figures and marginalized people uh, in computing. It's like, it is, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be like, on the one hand, I am happy that I get to to, you know, break this barrier and do this milestone. But on the other hand, they're kind of using me because they're trying to make a political point or like use me at like, you, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it, it, I can only imagine what that must have been like to actually know all of these things and feel all of these things, but still be somebody who was like breaking barriers and making history in these ways. Yeah,
5: totally. I would definitely still be like, no, fucking send me to space and in, in his shoes, you know, not me. Oh, personally. yeah, I would totally go. <laughs> oh, see, I'm <laughs> wait. If, uh-huh, go ahead. If given the
0: chance, would you go to space?
5: I think I would. I would have to. Because I refuse to let fear control my life. But oh my God, does that sound anxious? I would what I would need to do, not in addition to like astronaut or cosmonaut training, I would need to like really figure out a regimen of anti-anxiety drugs.
0: <laughs> you yeah, I'm sure it gets I'm sure it gets like anxiety provoking up there, like tight spaces, yeah. like probably weird, like all like. Probably weird sounds. Mm-hmm. I would go in a heartbeat. No question yeah. in my mind. I would totally go.
5: Cool. Sophie, would you go?
2: No. <laughs> we have the full range of choices. No.
0: You're not even <laughs> curious what's what's going on up there?
2: Nope. <laughs> You're like, I don't. It doesn't concern me. I'm going to mind my business down here on Earth. I'm going to stay down here with my hundred tampons and all of the day. <laughs>
5: They'd probably like send me up and they'd be like, trans woman, woman, okay, 100 tampons.
2: No, 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 you 200, you 200. Yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> I need
2: more. Will that be enough? Yeah, I don't even know.
5: As <laughs> I'm like on drugs Uh-oh. and eating them. <laughs> oh. But know what else you can eat on drugs? Potatoes. Absolutely. The sponsor of today's podcast. Uh, here's some advertising that supports. Our com- complicity in capitalism.
0: Me
1: Focus features presents back to black.
0: I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
1: Experience the music and her story.
0: Know this. I ain't no spy scale.
1: Like never before.
0: as my daughter, as my Amy.
1: On the big screen.
0: I want to be remembered.
4: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
5: And we are back, and we're all jealous of Sophie, whose dinner arrived. While well, we were just it staring wasn't at not
2: potatoes. I'm so sorry.
5: Well, there's other wholesome foods, I'm sure. So, at the top of this episode, the first part of this episode that you heard on Monday, today is Wednesday, because obviously you're listening to this the day it came out. It could be any day. I don't know what day it is when you're listening to this. I promised you a goth bisexual rocket scientist. And so, for the last story that I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to tell you about Jack Parsons and the Suicide Squad. Jack Parsons, who was actually, uh, his birth name is Marvel, but he didn't like his dad very much, so he he didn't keep his dad's name Marvel. Although Marvel Parsons would have also been a really good name. Jack Parsons. Kind of cool. I know. I like it. He's one of the people who founded JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that later became part of NASA, the place that started the trend of hiring women as computers in the aerospace field. And he designed a ton of rocket engines. He made advancements in solid and liquid fuel. Uh, That Nazi guy who led the space race, Werner von Braun. One time he got called the father of rocket science and he was like, no, 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 that's Jack Parsons. And I can't tell you that Jack Parsons was a good person, but I can tell you that he is fucking interesting. Jack Parsons was this rich white kid from Pasadena born in 1914. He'd read a ton of science fiction and he thought rockets were cool. He got picked on in school for being a rich effeminate kid. And he spent his afternoons with his like one friend and they would go blow shit up in the go out in the woods and blow shit up in the fucking homemade gunpowder. It's probably not woods. I assume it's like desert or something. I don't know the West Coast. He reads a ton of occultist shit while he's a Pas- teenager.
2: Pasadena? Pasadena? There's... <laughs> what, is it Florida? Is that... Am I just...
5: A... Wait, where's Pasadena? Is it,
2: is it West... Is, is it Pasadena, California?
5: Wait, where's Pasadena?
2: Because there, there's Pasadena, California or is it Pasadena somewhere else? Because Pasadena, California.
5: We don't have woods there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No woods. I was right. Okay. So it's not the woods he's blowing shit up in.
2: Going outside,
5: blowing shit up. Whatever Pasadena looks like, I don't know where Pasadena is. I clearly am a well-traveled, near near Los Angeles person. You can trust me. Okay. So his interests in classic goth, bisexual boy mode. He uh, he blows stuff up with homemade gunpowder. Figuring out how to make his own gunpowder. And then he reads occultist stuff and he tries to summon the devil in his bedroom. But he chickens out and doesn't finish the ritual. He goes to college. He starts working on rocket shit in the weekends. He starts corresponding with rocket scientists all over the world, including von Braun and the Russian cosmists. Like before the war shit came up, all of the US scientists, German scientists, Russian scientists, they were all buds and comparing notes. When he's in college, his crew in school got called the suicide squad because they're reckless with their bomb experiments and a bunch of the major players in rocket science in the U S and China are involved in the suicide squad.
0: Wait, I have Mm -hmm. a really possibly silly question. Please Please forgive me if this is the stupidest question. Mm -hmm. Is that where the name from like the comic book slash movie, the suicide squad, is that where the name comes from?
5: I don't know. I was thinking about that because this is the second thing, like a suicide squad I've run across in, um, in the i did an episode on gay resistance to fascism and i found out that gay nazis were put into a suicide it wasn't i don't know if it's called a suicide squad but they were put into a suicide squad where they were like instead of going to jail they got put in with all of like the worst nazis off to go do like but it was like an ss squad mm. um and so i was like reading that and i was like whoa is this where suicide squad got their thing it's from like gay fucking nazis and now I'm reading this and I'm like, maybe this is where fucking Suicide Squad got its name from. I don't know. Maybe it's just like a thing that people called idiots who yeah. kept trying to blow themselves up. Yeah, no maybe idea.
0: it shows up all throughout history. This is interesting. Yeah.
5: No, I, I I get really excited about these weird threads that I don't, I haven't figured out how to untangle yet. So he drops out of school because he doesn't have enough money to go to school. Uh, I think maybe because his dad had fucked off. I'm not entirely sure why his financial situation changed so much. But he never gets a degree, and he turns down honorary degrees later, which is even more of a flex in a way. Although I will also say the fact that it's like the white kid turning down all these degrees, as compared to like the black women who are like, like there's a whole thing that I didn't really get into about HBU's historically black universities and like how much work they did to help uh, black folks get ahead. And like, so I'm not trying to like, whenever I'm like, oh, and this maverick named Marvel who dropped out of. Oh my God, the fact his name was Marvel, is Suicide Squad Marvel or DC? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I
0: think it's Marvel, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I no, think I it's don't know. Marvel. Yeah.
5: Um. Anyway, that was an ADHD spinoff from what I was trying to talk about. But uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like, I, I love that you've added that, that like it's, it's real easy to be a white kid from Pasadena who turns down an honorary degree. Meanwhile, all of these black women who were like working their ass off for yeah. any recognition and getting none of it yeah. probably would have like, been really honored by a, a degree considering the, the the role that like HBCUs played in making sure that black folks were able to get educated, you know? Yeah. It makes so
2: much sense. Yeah. I also want everyone to know that we are safe. Suicide Squad is DC Comics. Okay. okay great. <laughs> that would have, too weird. Yeah. Too weird, everyone.
5: Yeah. All right. So he drops out of college. He's still blowing shit up. He actually, you know, he starts forming these rocket scientist companies and shit. And then he starts hanging out with the communists and gets really into Marxism, but he won't join the communist party because he's too anti-authoritarian, which makes me like him. But then he discovers something that he likes even more than like radical leftist anti-authoritarian politics, occultism. And in the, in the 1930s, he becomes a Thelemite, which is this religion started by Aleister Crowley that's all into magic and shit. And he starts talking about how magic is just quantum mechanics because he's really into science and all this, this other shit. And so, yeah, he's advancing the field of rocket scientists by leaps and bounds while smoking weed with his friends and chanting the hymn to Pan during rocket tests. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is like, I'm having trouble, like, wrapping my brain around this. The occult, like, it's just, I, I, yeah, this is like, in my when I was like in high school listening to Pink Floyd, this is like what my mom would be like, oh, you better watch out or you're going <laughs> to end up trying to go into space and being into the occult. Yeah, totally. <laughs> better watch out. <laughs>
5: totally. <laughs> <laughs> he talks throughout his life he's he sort of like has a, a reputation as a womanizer although he's actually part of a polyamorous culture which i'll get into a little bit but he also talks about his latent homosexuality and in his his fbi file which we'll get to he's called bisexual uh he liked to answer the door with a snake around his neck his mailbox was a mannequin holding a bucket that said resident across the bucket <laughs> um, i kind of love that. i know i kind of like this guy when the U.S. enters World War II, he and his leftist rocket scientist friends, they're like, we we need to help out with the war effort. And it was a moral duty from from their point of view. They had to stop the Nazis. So him and all his friends start very intentionally working on developing a lot of the, the rocketry that people used to fight the Nazis. He also leaves his wife, Helen, for her 17-year-old sister, Sarah. Ooh. But then Helen falls in love with Jack's best friend, and then the couples move in together. Into a Whoa, c- communal mess, house. Messy. Messy. Very messy. <laughs> but they stay friends. And the house is called the Parsonage because it's, I think it's because it's his fucking money paid for it all. Because it's like. And then Sarah.
2: Oh my God. Sarah. Oh God.
5: <laughs> leaves him for fucking L. Ron Hubbard.
2: Are you fucking kidding? No. Oh my
5: fucking oh God.
0: My God. Honestly, of course, of course she does. Yeah. Of course. She, like, what else could she do?
5: Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so anyway, so in a similar way.
2: No, no. We're not just going to move on? We're not? Wh- no, okay. okay we, well, can, we, we can, we can, we no, can. No, my no. bad, my bad. So so L. Ron what? Hubbard is like,
5: he's really into all this occultist shit too before he starts his own religion yeah, yeah, to yeah, fucking yeah. milk everyone out of their money. Um, and yeah, the weird fucking crew of people.
2: Okay, I'm going to need a nap after this. <laughs>
5: So, okay, so in a similar way that Stalin had gotten all paranoid and imprisoned and oppressed all of their best scientists and the UK fucked over Alan Turing, well, the House of Un-American Activities has some words to say for Jack Parsons, who has advanced, like, like his ideas of rocket fuel are what gets us to the moon. Like, he absolutely does a fucking ton of important stuff, right? And then the House of Un-American Activities is, like, no, you're a fucking communist. And he's like, actually, I'm not a communist. I, I, I'm anti-authoritarian and I'm a thelemite. And so I believe in the power of the individual. And they're like, we don't care. You're a fucking communist. They revoke his security clearance. He's not able to get any work in the field because how are you going to be a missile designer if you can't work for the government? And his life is just falling apart. In 1952, he moves to Mexico and he sets up an explosives factory, which I guess is a thing one can choose to do when one's life is falling apart. And then one day, he's making some bombs for a film set, a Mexican film, and his trailer blows up and it kills him. And lots of people have lots of ideas about exactly what happened here, but it was probably an accident or suicide. He'd probably been high on morphine at the time he died, but then other people are like, no, it was these people... His story is so much more complex than I'm getting across because I only half understand it because it's so twisted and convoluted. But there's so many people who would have tried to kill him. So I don't fucking know what happened to this guy. And everyone likes to argue about it because it's like, okay, he he probably dropped this container of this chemical. And then people are like, no, he was very careful. And other people are like, are you fucking kidding? He wasn't careful if you met this guy. But on the other hand, he'd been doing that shit since he was a little kid. So I don't know. Jack fucking Parsons. Then, okay, we're done with people, but one more. Thing, which actually involves a person. So I guess I lied when I said no more people. So for all the, the cold detached atheism that scientists are supposedly known for, there's always this religious component. And I hadn't even realized that until I started doing this research. You've got a Unitarian astronomer, you've got the cosmos who want to resurrect the dead. Catherine Johnson was a Presbyterian who sang in the choir, was a member of her church for 50 years. Alan Turin, he believed in fortune telling. A fortune teller told him when he was a little kid that he was going to be a genius. And supposedly the last time he had his fortune read, he came out really shook and he didn't tell anyone what happened. Um, never told anyone what he heard. And then, of course, there's Jack fucking Parsons, who. Uh, yeah, he's Jack fucking Parsons. He, he's singing to him to pan during rocket tests. But I want to talk about one more religion that's obsessed with space. Earthseed, which is the fictional religion made up by maybe the most prescient science fiction author who ever lived, Octavia Butler.
0: Yes. This is this. Yes, I. This is you're speaking my language. I. am a big Butler fan. Let's do this. She's
5: so fucking amazing. I'm this. I'm not unfortunately good. I, God, I actually probably need to do an episode on Butler.
0: You absolutely should. I would definitely listen to that. Yeah. Okay, so she
5: wrote a book in 1993 called The Parable of the Sower, which I think is the most prescient science fiction book that's ever been written, at least in terms of our current uh, disaster that we're all living through. And this is the book where the the fictitious religion of Earthseed comes from. She describes a slow apocalypse that includes a right-wing fanatic of a president who runs under the slogan, Make America Great Again.
0: Sound familiar?
5: (laughs) And so the protagonists, they make their way up to Northern California. They set up a little apocalypse survival homestead, and they develop a religion based on basically two things. One, God is change, that we all have to learn to embrace and shape change and let change shape us. And two, basically that the stars are our destiny. Theoretically, something like space exploration ought to be something that brings humanity together instead of dividing us. And I don't know. And I think that that's important to think about. One, because I fucking like it a lot. But two, because the old way of doing space is dying right now, right? Like nations are no longer the primary drivers of space research. You have capitalism instead which is maybe the only thing more dangerous than these nation states. And and I propose that we're at a sort of crossroads. Either space gets explored and claimed by fucking corporations that I'd claim, I would say will not be named, but we clearly named them earlier. Or we get our shit together and do it like Butler told us and do it for humanity.
0: That, like, you just blew my mind. I, yeah, I, you just blew my mind. I hadn't thought about it that way. First of all, I have to say I'm so glad that you're referencing Butler because... In this moment, everybody is like, "Oh, Handmaid's Tale, Handmaid's Tale." Yeah. No, yeah. it is fucking Butler. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's the that's the text we should be uh, at least uh, the text that I think that we should be like looking to. But honestly, the way that you put that is almost kind of hopeful that we have this. We're at a, at, a, at a crossroads where we can decide if we want the next generation of space exploration to belong to people like Elon Musk or something different like is it is it like who is it for what's it, who's going to define it i think i think it's almost sort of hopeful the way that you put that
5: thanks i yeah i i you know it's like i i try for optimism sort of strategically because it's the only chance we have is to to act like we can win you know i don't know and yeah and that in that book parable of the sower and the sequel parable of the talents it it's the most hopeful apocalypse i've ever like apocalyptic book i've ever read and that's one reason i love it so much that's my episode on space and the exploration of it and rockets and computers. Do <laughs> you have any any final final reflections or
0: Yeah, my final reflection is just that like I can't I'm so surprised to find myself in this optimistic space where you know, it's kind of up to us like like what's it going to be? What are we going to decide we want? And you know, are we going to treat we've kind of done a number on the on the world on the, on on earth are we going to let people who we know can't be trusted do the same thing to space or aren't we? You know, it's just it's kind of up to us. I yeah. I don't yeah. know. It is a it's a, a hopeful apocalypse, I guess, <laughs> as you said. Thanks. Bridget, do you have any uh, pluggables for us? Yeah, uh, I love conversations about technology and all things nerdy. And so please come check out my podcast. There are no girls on the internet. You can find me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC
2: or on Twitter at Bridget Marie. Amazing. And uh, we'll be back next week, right, Margaret?
5: Yay! Till the heat death of the universe.
2: Where can people follow you, Margaret?
5: Oh, well, if you want to see pictures of my dog or of a turtle that I saw today that was eating a mushroom.
2: Also, yes. uh, You can follow
5: me on Instagram at Margaret Killjoy. And if you want to hear me uh, complain about discourse while participating in discourse, you can follow me on Twitter at Magpie
2: Killjoy. I do. I really do. <laughs> and I'll uh, we'll follow Bridget, follow Margaret. We'll be back next week. Yay. Yeah, hey. Bye, everyone.
3: Bye.
2: Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
3: your podcasts.